Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Richard Wilson. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me here. Richard is a third generation Eagle Scout, husband and father of three, living in Scottsdale, Arizona. He is the CEO and founder of the Family Office Club, the number one largest association of over 3,000 registered ultra-wealthy families and their family offices. Richard's 18-person team operates multiple media platforms, including Dennis Investors LLC, InvestorResidences.com, Billionaires.com, and CommercialRealEstate.com. And Richard, let, let's start there. It's a question I ask a lot of folks that come on the show. What is your definition of a family office? Essentially a full balance sheet investment solution for an ultra wealthy family. So if you're worth half a million dollars and you make a mistake on something, maybe it costs you $500 to file your taxes late or some interest on something late. But when you're really busy and you have 100 LLCs and you have 50 employees, one mistake might cost you half a million dollars or $100,000, right? So there's more need to manage everything holistically and, and focus your energy. Got it. And you've been in this world for a while. How have you seen that definition change over time? It seems like, I mean, I've married into a family office over the last 10, 15 years. It's become an industry onto itself. And the term gets thrown around a lot, especially from a marketing perspective. I'm curious what you've experienced in your role. Yeah, I think the whole interview could just be on that, which nobody ever talks about. But so when I started, people told me I was wasting my time and that the family office space would never turn into anything. And this was back in 2007. And one time I was on Brian Tracy's TV show in 2010, and the guy next to me managed $500 million of wealth in New Jersey, right near New York City. And he had never heard of the word family office. And now almost everyone's heard of the word if you work in finance. Some wealthy people don't know what it is still. Some of my family members think I set up offices in people's basements or something. I have to explain it every time I go home. People use it in a sneaky way sometimes to get access to other wealthy people. They say, oh yeah, we're a family office. They say, oh really, what do you invest in? Oh, multifamily. Oh really, okay. Yeah, and then the next moment they want you to invest in their multifamily deals and you find out the only thing they invest in is their own deals and then they're selling other people deals 24 seven and that's like their only mission on planet earth. So you see that out there quite a bit. I think that gets found out pretty quick when you talk to somebody. And then there's wealth management firms that want wealthier clients and they might call themselves a multifamily office, but maybe it's just pretty much a wealth management firm trying to target some wealthier clients. So you have some of that happening, of course, when, when any term gets used more and more. Yeah. And I want to go a little bit deeper there because it seems like you do have some opinions, especially within the RIA channel and even wirehouses. 
you know, multifamily offices masquerading as single family offices or groups offering up family office services that don't really understand what it means just as a way to grab AUM. What do you think the state of the industry is within the RIA multifamily office world? Right. Yeah, it's definitely very dynamic. There's a full spectrum out there. And I see some that say we offer a virtual family office solution. Like you said, we dig in. They could maybe suggest a few service providers, but are not really playing that quarterback role. And what we found, unfortunately, is that so many families get charged $50,000 or $100,000 for a little piece of software, for consultant advice. And we got tired of, we'd work with one family, charge them four to $7,000 a month to set up their family office. And it would work, try to work with another family that was even more exciting to work with. They needed our value even more. And the principal will get hung up on like paragraph nine or what's the cancellation clause? Well, how many hours of our time do you get? It just became a, a friction point. And as our company grew, I realized like the value of getting to know those people is worth a lot more than charging them any fee. So we just went away with all fees. We just help people set up family offices for free. We give away the advice that others charge $100,000 for for free. I just finished recording a 14 module mini series on YouTube called How to Start a Family Office. And it's like sitting down for an hour and a half of me talking nonstop, giving away 14 building blocks for a family office that you can watch at a two times playback speed. And the reason we do all of this is just that a lot of families don't know what they don't know. And they've got a lot to learn if it's their first time setting up a family office. And a lot of the industry is out to design a game board for them that allows them to collect $200 every time their client passes go. But the whole point of a family office is to custom design your game boards. If you made your money in dry cleaners and you really like storage, okay, maybe you do a little bit of that stuff directly or you go passive on other things and really customize it to your DNA, your strengths, what you love doing. And maybe you just want to sit on the beach and that's fine too. But if you don't design your own game board, someone else will for you and, and then they're going to have more fun than you. I like that analogy. And it, it is confusing and it's really morphed a lot over the last decade. Something else that I've noticed I'd love to hear your thoughts on is some of these larger families and especially some of the big liquidity events that we've seen over the last five years, especially with COVID, they're now proper private equity firms themselves. I don't think they actually are even family offices any longer. They're competing directly with Wall Street or the Bay Area, whatever asset class that they're playing in. They've professionalized themselves to an extent that they actually are becoming what they tried to get away from initially. Right. Sometimes. I mean, I think there's a big difference between a family office being so dialed in on their deal origination and so dialed in on their sophistication of leveraging debt and structuring deals and so well-staffed with private equity brains that they just do amazing investments. I think that's very different than someone who says, okay, we did that ourselves for five, seven, 10 years. Now all of our friends are asking for access. Okay, let's turn this into a private equity division and we'll put 20% of every deal of our own money, but let's really make this a private equity business. But we try to take best practices that every billion dollar plus private equity firm uses that don't cost very much money and instill those within families that are worth 50 million, 100 million, 400 million. So like every billion dollar plus private equity group has a deal origination team, usually four to six people, sometimes 10, that just reach out nonstop to asset owners to blanket a universe. But almost no family offices do this. So I, I help families design an approach. Like if you own a roofing company and you're in Utah, maybe identify the 124 roofing companies in Utah, have somebody overseas, get all their contact details, social media accounts and a spreadsheet, craft the sentence and a half, have someone overseas send it from your inbox in a really credible way, and then get 40 out of those 120 people on the phone and make four or five investments off market 
at a superior valuation because it wasn't shopped by some broker to 20 different roofing companies. And they seriously need your help because you're a bigger roofing company than them or you sold your roofing company. And like one of the most valuable things a private investor could do is figure out how do they see deals first exclusively and at a better valuation than anyone else. And you can't be known as like the guy I'm going to send the deal first for every type of deal, right? It's like, oh, if you're a roofing, if there's a roofing deal in Utah, all right, then I should send it to Brian, right? And so you really need to define what you want to stand for and what you want to attract. And I'll stop there so I don't talk too long, but basically like you want to see deals first exclusively at a better valuation. Yeah, I think applying the private equity playbook to a family corpus of assets makes a ton of sense. It is a way to actually differentiate and create true alpha. I'm curious, so how does this work structurally within your firm? You've got this playbook that you help spin up these family offices, but you also have conferences, live events. How do those two things work together? What's the organization look like? Right, right. Yeah, sure. So at the center of it is we're a community, we're an investor club. It's basically at this point in time, $8,800 a year, and you get access to 15 live events. An investor portal will review your materials typically about once a quarter and give you feedback on them. And out of our 15 live events a year, four of them are investor club summits with 700 to 1200 people there and 75 to 130 speakers on stage over a couple of days. And then a dozen of the events are workshops on how to structure investments, on how to raise capital, do investor relations, et cetera. So the people joining are those people raising capital. People who are investors can work with me directly and we'll get to know them and then register them for the events. If they're a doctor, dentist, big family office, multifamily office, et cetera, then we'll pre-qualify them and they can come to the events without paying that, that membership fee. But the most important part of the question is like how that all works together. Because a lot of people see us, they're like, oh, it looks like just this community or an investor club. But the byproducts of running all these events is that we get a lot of deal flow and we get a lot of strategies and structures. And we see all these case studies of who became ultra wealthy, how they did it. And then we also see how they're continuing to grow their wealth. And so what we've identified is that the smartest families focus on just one to three games that they get really good at. And so we've chosen our games, which is while we run our investor club. But the only two areas we really invest in are medical practices that are profitable, multiple locations. It's called medical clinic capital and then short-term rental properties. And it's called investorresidences.com. So we have 84 Airbnb properties we've invested in so far. And on the medical side, we have, as of today, 23 with another five closing soon medical practice equity stakes. And so by focusing in those areas, then our, we're going up the learning curve very quickly in those areas, but using all the structures, strategies, deal flow, relationships to grow those divisions. So we try to do everything we tell our clients to do, whether we're wealthier or less wealthy than our clients. Like we're learning for our own selfish benefit, but I'm playing a different game than you are. So there's no reason to hold it back. I might as well just like share everything we're learning. And then we learn faster by attracting people to the club. And what was the experience like coming out of COVID? You know, have you seen an uptick in families that are interested? There was a lot of liquidity events that occurred, a lot of wealth creation. What's kind of the state of play for your business right now? We're recording this in Q1 of 2023. Yeah. You know, the first 10 days of COVID, I had been isolated because on March 12th, I was exposed to someone who had COVID. So I was literally living in my office and I kicked out my team like everybody else to go work from home. And, you know, for about 10 days, I didn't know what was going to happen because we were hosting 32 events a year back then and I was going to zero. So I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. But then like everyone else, we adjusted to the virtual environment. And what I found is that since COVID, 
when there's a really great opportunity, people move even faster to take advantage of it. But right now, because of where we are with interest rates and the economy, 70% of investors are sitting on their hands and not allocating much. But Joe Williams, the founder of Keller Williams, was at our event speaking last month. And it was nice to hear after five decades, him talk about it and about how he's buying right now. And he says, there's no such thing as a bad real estate market. It's just a market to sell in or a market to buy in, you know, and there's always opportunities. So in his mind, it wasn't like, oh, go hide in the cave and then try to time the bottom perfectly. And that's how, how I think as well, being, you know, we've hosted 190 live events now and I've spoken over 600 times on stage and I've just learned that the smartest families can apply how they force appreciation and add value to things in, in different market opportunities. And yesterday we closed on a property called the Jurassic Retreat, which is like a Jurassic Park-like themed property with gates and animated dinosaurs. And that property will not be available for the person who waited for the bottom. And we got a 20% plus discount off the list price and acquired it yesterday while other people, you know, hid in their caves, right? It's like that old trader adage, there are no bad bonds, there are just bad bond pricing. Um, <laughs> right. There's always opportunity. So, right. you know, as you look out onto the landscape, I know you have an initiative towards health and wellness this is something that a lot of families are focused on. What are you hearing and, and seeing from your community as they try to install some of these wellness programs within their families? You know, while I know that Peter Diamandas and Tony Robbins book recently that came out uh, draws a wealthy crowd. It's not a secret that founders of Google and other tech companies invest in things about, you know, trying to expand longevity. I know that attracts wealthy people, but the reality is most wealthy people don't invest in their health too much. They don't take it super seriously. A lot of clients worth hundred million plus need to lose 40 pounds. A lot of them are not investing in their health as much as their kids and spouse would like them to. A lot of them have so much fun playing the game of business and traveling here, getting this done. And like, oh, well, I spent 30 years getting to this point. So now I have to take advantage of it that they sleep four or five hours and they burn the candle on both ends. And so I find myself falling into that sometimes. You know, I've worked for 16 years to get to this point and I could just work an hour a day. But I've, I took so much work to get to this foundation that now it's the most exciting time ever. So I'm, I'm taking advantage of those opportunities. And so to self-regulate myself and my clients, and we're getting a really positive response from this, I'm really enforcing 30 different ways to invest in your health. And I'm only recommending things that I'm doing myself. So after I've done it, then I recommend it to my clients. And this, these are things that help you not die early, not get hospitalized, feel better, live longer, and not super out there scientific things or going in the jungle of Costa Rica and snort these mushrooms or anything. It's like, you know, if you don't want to die early from somebody else text messaging on the highway, maybe get a Model X Tesla and guess what? An Escalade in the Suburban only have a four-star crash rating. So get the Grandpa Mobile Navigator and you're less likely to die randomly later today. You know, if you're going to die early, it's probably from cancer or a car accident. So that's like one example. Or get an MRI every 18 months for the rest of your life. Or get a Mayo Executive Physical every single year. Or go to insidertracker.com and spend $800 on a nurse coming to your house and pulling your blood out and then giving you 50 biomarkers because it costs less than the oil change on your Mercedes AMG, right? There's like all ideas that's like, why would you not do that if you're worth $100 million? And your spouse would slap you awake and say, yeah, you idiot, you should be doing those things. I've been telling you to work on your health. And you know, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, if you're a busy executive, CEO is passionate, it's easy to not focus on your health. But if you don't invest in your health, 
then nothing else matters because your investments are going to go down. You'll be hospitalized. It won't be productive. And if you die, you're going to get taxed a lot and stop making money. So even if you're super greedy, you should focus on your health, right? It's like, just makes sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And I love some of the thoughts that you threw out there. My, my question to audiences when I talk about health and wellness and then families, people I think pay lip service. But if you go look at their budget and what their operating company is spending on mental health, wellness, healthcare, therapy, et cetera, it's like compared to what they spend on tax professionals, it's a total joke. So it's really not allocating enough resources in my opinion. So I think you're spot on there. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. The numbers tell you the truth, right? I was at a a doctor's investment management conference where I knew everybody attending paid thirty or fifty thousand dollars to be part of this network. And when I was there, I said, who has spent more than $30,000 on their health in the last year? And one person out of 180 people raised their hand. And I don't know if they just went through cancer or a surgical op, you know, op or plastic surgery, who knows, but nobody else did. And I said in the nicest way I could, well, all of you value your money more than your life and more than your health and more than feeling good. And that's kind of backwards, right? But it's just the normal thing that Americans and human beings do is like, oh, I got to pay for the car and keep the car kept up and the house and vacation and all these things instead of investing in yourself. And you're going to trade out that car when you're bored of it in three to five years or maybe next year. So you can't really trade out parts of your body too easily. So I think that's that's something I always try to reinforce is the numbers you were just talking about. So in terms of your own personal wellness journey, what are some of the top things that you've done that have made a huge impact in your life that you've then gone out and spread to your community? Yeah. <clears throat> One thing is not having caffeine as much or at all. And so by taking caffeine out of the picture, it makes me more aware of things around me, more thoughtful, less, less like, it's not like I'm a highly anxious person. It makes me like anxiety levels go down, I sleep better. So that that's been one thing that's kind of unusual. I also took a three month break from drinking alcohol like 11 years ago, and I just never went back. And I said, oh, okay, well, I didn't miss it much. Maybe I'll go for one year without drinking it. And I figured I didn't need a toxin in my body slowing me down. I was just having my first kid at that time. And I was like, well, if anything, I need some energy to speed me up. And one of my mentors, Evan Pagan, taught me like, well, it's good to have energy, but you want to have energy because you're healthy and feeling great, not fake energy from, you know, caffeine or God forbid, cocaine or something ridiculous, right? So I think that's one thing that's not super intuitive. And then there's a book called Why We Sleep. And that was like a game-changing book for me on sleep. It basically shows like it's worse than smoking a pack of cigarettes if you sleep less than six hours a night. You're, it basically, if you read that book, you realize that you're a certified idiot if you sleep less than six hours a night. I know some people need seven, some need eight, some need nine. But under seven, the research starts to tell you this is unhealthy. And under six and a half, six, it's like it's certified unhealthy. It doesn't matter who you are pretty much. Yeah, I would echo all of those sentiments. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download. You alluded to something also about the next-gen community trying to urge their parents to be healthier, etc. Do you think that within the family office community specifically, that let's call it kind of 45 and below 
do they get it when it comes to health and wellness? Are they already converted or is there still more work to be done in terms of allocating resources there? It seems like most people, when I say it out loud, get it um, almost right away, regardless of the regardless of the age. A lot of people know they need to do this, but they're so busy and then they put it off. And so what we're trying to do is make it like literally click here and buy this thing. Like, don't think about it. Just you should be doing all these things. And out of 30 ideas, here's seven that are pretty damn expensive. So if you're worth less than 50 million or 30 million, maybe you want to not do those seven for now or just think about it. But out of these 20, 23, like you should just do these things. Just click and buy it, click and do it. And so we want to just make it super easy just because they're super busy and they don't know who to trust for that information. And I'm not their doctor. They should ask their doctor before taking any medicine, but nothing we're suggesting is like medicine or even really a supplement. It's like, oh, here's something just to evaluate and make sure you don't have a problem here or go talk to doctors. Like one service is called, I haven't used them yet, so it's not officially on our list, but I saw it recently. It's called Go Forward. And it's basically proactive health insurance. They're not there to fix you. They're there to improve you and optimize you. So it's like a health insurance plan for 300 a month, I think it is, that helps you optimize your health and have a team of doctors doing that instead of the opposite, right? Very cool. Let, let's pivot to kind of a capital raising and capital allocation part of the business. There's a lot of sponsors and fund managers out there running around trying to get family office money. I don't think they actually understand what that means, but if they are listening, if they're on kind of the pitch side, what do you see that's working right now? And maybe more importantly, what just does not work when you're trying to access this community of investors? Yeah, sure. So what does not work is email blasting out to tons of people, a blanket message, and especially a really long message that takes forever to read. What also does not work is following up, you know, five times over three days or just like bombarding someone, then they just know that you don't know how to work with family offices because they're so busy and they get so many communications. They haven't even had time to read your first message and they already hit you up like two, three, four more times. You're like, whoa, there's no way. I don't want to like go into that vortex. Like you're just going to eat me alive if I show any sign of life maybe. So that's what doesn't work. What does work is adding value to them first. What does work is standing out out of a thousand deals. What makes yours stand out? What also works is really concise, clear, articulate communications that sound different than everybody else. So when we designed our short-term rental fund for InvestorResidences.com, we specifically chose an investment structure that we had never seen in 16 years of looking at a thousand deals every month or every quarter. And so we don't charge asset management fees upfront or annually until we double our investors' money. And nobody else does that. They all charge you money before they've made you money. And so that was something we did on purpose to stand out out of a thousand offerings. And we also chose the short-term rental niche because there's not as much crowd there. There's not, it's not, it's not a mature space full of investment managers. So a couple of things that almost everyone is missing is a one-liner on their offering. It's just one sentence and it has hard numbers about why they're credible. Like we've invested in 23 medical practices doing 45 million a year in revenue with our 25 person team, right? No, you can't make that up tomorrow morning and say those things unless you're a complete fraud that's just completely lying about what you're doing. So a one-liner is super critical. The other thing is a video from the founder. So if you met someone at a conference, usually in like 30 seconds, you can tell, hey, I kind of like this person. They seem normal, smart, uh, like a really good person, easy to work with maybe. And sometimes you're like, well, this person's like really kind of in my face and stressed out or really pushy and a little bit rude. And you can read that on people really quickly sometimes. And so just a two minute video from the founder is super helpful. 
And then a lot of people have 40 page pitch decks, but no one pager. And so when you combine all that and you have a one liner you can use on email or at the top of your pitch deck or one pager and the video can go on your website and then you have a one pager and really concise communications and a unique offering, then you cut through a lot of the clutter that's out there when you want to get your message out there. Related, but a little bit different. In your experience working these families, how does the actual investment decision-making process happen when they truly are going to allocate capital to a sponsor, a fund manager, or a deal? Sure. Usually, and sometimes the hardest part is to get their attention through a referral, adding value to them first, or just appearing super unique. So they reply. Uh, and that goes faster if they're local to the deal, or they already know you, or they already know the industry. And that, those are the three things that help it go faster. At that point, a family office who's been around for a while will usually ask you questions via email to de-risk their time before they meet in person or go over the phone. They don't always do that, but I always recommend that because you can find out the deal would have been a big waste of your time just by asking five questions that kind of get to the point of whether they really have experience or a track record or not. At that point, there's usually a, a short phone call, a cup of coffee, et cetera. And then depending on the family, they might go into deeper due diligence or they may move forward relatively quickly. So some families will move forward based on the trust of a referral or them knowing the industry really well. And they'll have pretty quick process of conducting due diligence, going through phone calls, asking some detailed questions, another phone call, and then they'll invest, visit your offices, and then invest. And others have a whole team of underwriters and analysts and financial modelers that will do a real deep dive on the investment. So a lot of it depends on if they're putting in 100K to 500K or if it's one to 10 million, you know, that, that definitely changes how much they spend on due diligence. Yeah, I think that's the biggest takeaway I've had in this world is for these folks that where anything is possible, time is the biggest rate limiting factor for them. And it is going to be the driving function of whether or not they want to work with you. And that goes everything from, to your point, your marketing materials, to your pitch, to your onboarding, to the investor relations and communication it has to be seamless and has to be really top notch because if you start wasting their time, they'll never forgive you in my experience. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Their, their time is worth a ton. And that's why, like what you said, if you approach somebody and you have a Gmail address or a 1990s clip art logo and an offering that looks like everybody else's, it just shows you don't even take yourself seriously. It's like, why should they invest their time if you didn't invest $8 in a GoDaddy domain name so you have a professional email address, right? Like, because just them reading that one liner was worth more than $8 of their time. So it just shows you don't take yourself seriously and nobody will take you more seriously than you take yourself. And that's why, you know, we bought billionaires.com and why we try to have everything branded and, and dialed in as much as we can, because otherwise, why should someone else take you seriously if you don't care about your own stuff, right? Yeah, hundred percent. What, um, what have you seen, you know, we referenced this earlier in the conversation, there's been a lot of new wealth created since the great financial crisis. These families behave and operate very differently than call it a multi-generational family that's been around for four or five generations. I don't like the term old money versus new, but what are you seeing differentiation-wise in terms of how some of this new wealth creation invests versus how a multi-generational family that's been around for a hundred years typically will allocate capital? Right. <clears throat> I would say that newer trend that is picked up by newer family offices more often is doing co-GP deals and joint venture deals. So that could give them superior terms or pay lower fees and provide all the capital that somebody needs in the deal potentially. Sure. So I think that's a trend. While people like to talk about ESG and they like to talk about impact investing and those who do actually take action on it are the newer generation. 
Not many of my clients focus on that explicitly. Many of them focus on doing business in a way that adds value to other people. Almost all of them donate money, but they aren't going around saying, show me only ESG deals, show me only impact deals. The ones who are, again, are the younger generations, but I work with some of the younger ones as well. And they're not as focused on that as the media and people would have you believe, you know, and lots of people have their own set of values that maybe don't fit a ESG blueprint, you know, greenwashing stamp, but they like to add value back in their own way. For example, a roofing company, I know they donate a roof every quarter to a veteran or a dental clinic. I know if someone can't afford dental care and they're in great pain, they'll tell them, oh yeah, yeah, we'll just bill your insurance. You're good. And they'll help them and just, you know, they know they can't bill the insurance. They're already in the chair. At that point, just get the tooth out of there, get them on their way. There's no point like not serving them. It takes five minutes to take it out. So there's all different ways people give back. Those are some of the trends I notice most often is the co-GP. And then the one other trend I have to mention though, is just that a lot of people who are older don't even think of themselves as having a family office, but they have a hundred LLCs and they're worth a hundred million dollars plus. So just even identifying as a family office and formalizing your SFO, your single family office or your virtual family office is a trend in itself that really is a younger generation pushed trend, even if they're convincing their 65 or 75 year old dad to take that action. Yeah. Some people just don't have the comfort level of, of identifying as a family office like they do today, where it's much more de rigueur or just accepted that that's the structure and organization. How about we, we talk on the show a lot about this generational transfer between baby boomers and, and next gens. It's actually happening in real time from what I've seen and hearing and feeling. Are you seeing that within your community? And if so, is that transition going smoothly? Are there some serious hiccups? What are the families that are doing it right? Like what kind of seeds have they planted earlier to allow it to happen smoothly? Yeah, it doesn't happen smoothly too often. Many times the father doesn't want to change a lot or the mother who's managing the wealth who created the wealth because they know what created and protected the wealth. So for good reason, they don't want to give up everything they've learned and then hand it over to a 30-year-old who hasn't learned anything the hard way yet and say, all right, yeah, do it your way. You know better. So that's the difficulty. You combine that with maybe some forgetfulness or a little bit of extra stubbornness when they get in the late 70s or 80s, maybe, and it make things, makes things even harder. The earlier you start that conversation, I think the better. And the earlier you start grooming the next generation, the better. I've had my daughters, when they want to buy something, I try to help them do like a lemonade stand and make their own money to buy that thing. I plan on buying my daughters or having them, you know, borrow money from the family to buy like a vending machine business, et cetera, as they get older. They're just six, eight, and 10 right now. But I want them to learn the value of earning money, managing money, you know, what profit means, you know, tax returns, all that very early. So I could trust them with a division of the business later or have them go out in the world and come back and trust them with managing something. And a lot of families don't start that process until pretty late. And there's a struggle between the younger generation wanting to take over and maybe being eager to do so and the older generation wanting to stick to their ways and and not even tell everybody what assets exist, maybe. It seems like you've drawn some really good lessons from working alongside some of these families. What are some of the common characteristics you see across we'll call successful families, ones that are able to go through two, three, four generations of inheritance. Right. I think knowing that you do not want to control everything in-house, no matter how many billions of dollars of capital you have is a best practice. Even multi-billion dollar family offices that do well typically only do one to three things internally. And then they outsource the investment management for certain areas, such as commodities or wealth management in general. And they focus on 
fintech or healthcare or wherever they made their money or where they think the future is going towards and they just have passion or interest in that area. So that's really important for passing on wealth. Another thing is that passing on your values is more important than passing on the wealth because the values will protect the wealth and protect the family from destroying each other. They will also protect the ability to regrow the wealth. If the wealth is lost or damaged, it's the values that'll bring the wealth back. So transferring the values is more valuable than transferring the wealth, but they go together. They need to go together. And so we have our family values above our kitchen wall and my 10 year old has them memorized. So she went on stage in New York last month in front of, you know, 200 people and recited the values from memory. And one thing that we do is have these yellow fun tickets. And when they do something in line with the family values, they get a fun ticket and they can cash that in for prizes on the wall. And if they are bad, then we take away fun tickets. And one of my daughters quit gymnastics after we had already paid for it. So she went into debt for the first time in her life. And we put a note on the fridge and had her sign it that she was in debt 100 fun tickets that she had to make back over time because we, we wasted like $200 on gymnastics, which she just refused to go no matter what we said or threatened her with. It's okay, well, then you're in debt. You're going to have to work this off over time. So I think systems like that that reinforce and talk about the values and make them real is one of the most critical things as well. Well, I have to ask, what are your family values? Yeah, so ours are integrity, healthy, responsibility, speed of implementation, respect, and positive, positive attitude, basically. And <clears throat> importantly, we try to really emphasize the definition of integrity really broadly. So integrating like what food you eat, what friends you have, what media you consume and have that all be aligned is like almost the most important type of just full, like just integrating things in your life, not just your morals being aligned with your actions, which is just like integrity of a normal definition, but just really the integration of things and alignment. So things aren't out of alignment. I love it. And and we're, we've gone for almost full time, but I, I did want to get to the billionaires.com and some of the other initiatives that you're working on. We'd love to hear a little bit more and, and what you envision for them moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, it took us 12 years to buy that domain name. We followed up every two to four months since 2009 and bought it about a year and a half ago now. And we've interviewed 20 billionaires, including Jeff Hoffman, including Mark Cuban. And you can see all those interviews on billionaires.com for free. We also have videos up there of interviews that other people have done with Jay-Z, Michael Jordan, Sarah Blakely, all people that we would love to interview at some point. If anyone has a connection to any billionaire, whether they're A-list or not. And the goal here is not to have a video crew and take up a bunch of their time. We only ask three questions over email, so they can't be misquoted. And they're non-invasive questions. So we're basically asking them what they've learned while becoming a billionaire in a way that would be helpful to anybody, whether they're starting a business or in high school or whether they're worth $100 million or whether they're another billionaire that wants to learn from other billionaires. And the vision here is that if I could interview 100 billionaires and I just ask to gather not only a website, billionaires.com, where you can just stream insights for billionaires, but we'll have 300 insights from 100 billionaires in a little 100-page book. And I think it'll be one of the most dense resources in the world where you just get ideas straight from billionaires. You know, And if you're going to learn how to play basketball, you could read a bunch of books and you could watch YouTube videos from college basketball players. You'd probably learn quite a lot. But if you could read books and learn from Kobe and LeBron and Jordan or only from NBA players, why wouldn't you do that first, right? So that's my thesis is like, 
why watch any YouTube videos or read any books from non-billionaires until you've consumed all the things from billionaires first, because they're the NBA players, and then maybe go read the other books and, and consume the other YouTube videos. So that's kind of the mission we're on is just to aggregate insights from billionaires in one place. And we figure we'll come away with at least one good idea after doing that, a hundred of those. You know. That's awesome. Well, Richard, I want to thank you so much for coming on. For those listening, please do leave a review. Let us know your favorite part of the conversation. And Richard, if folks are interested in learning more about, you know, you called out the website, but the, the conference, the investments you're making, being part of your community, what's the best way for them to connect? Sure. The number one best place is to go to familyoffices.com because you can see our conference schedule. You can see charter membership if you want to join the investor club, if you're raising capital for something. But we also have a free book on family offices there. If you're raising capital, we have a free book for you at capitalraising.com. If you're an investor and you want to get in touch with me, you can just go to investorclub.com and fill out that form or shoot me a text message for what you see on there. And um, don't forget, if you're starting a family office, we have those 14 modules. It's a mini series on YouTube on how to start a family office. And that's probably the most value per minute I can give someone if they're an investor really looking to put together a family office solution or if they're, if they're ultra wealthy. And there is one other question I ask everybody that comes on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I do. What I do is read over my one pager every single day that has my monthly, annual, and quarterly goals. And then it has all my little, like 50 different little one-liners and four words that remind me of how I want to live my life and what will be the path to getting things done. Like, for example, it's more important to work. It's not, it's not how hard you work, it's what you do. And don't do anything that's linear, only do exponential things, or I won't take a meeting that I don't want to take, et cetera. And I've got like 50 of those little statements and strategies. And by reading my monthly, quarterly, annual goals and all those little statements every single morning before I start my day, they're laminated where I shave every day, then I'm entering the world with kind of my lenses on of like, this is what's important to me and this is how I'm going to act. And that just helps shield from things very quickly that would be a distraction otherwise. So that, that kind of makes things more focused and calm. I love it. I'm glad you took my meeting. So thank you for coming on the show. This is great. I encourage people to check out the website. You do provide some really great content and I'm going to check out the modules. That sounds really cool. And Richard, thank you again for coming on. I look forward to staying in touch. Appreciate it. Yeah, let's do so. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.